Premier Christian Newscast. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Newscast. I'm Tim Wyatt. Today, Queen Elizabeth II will be laid to rest at a funeral attended by hundreds of international leaders and watched by millions around the world. Soon, our focus will inevitably shift from mourning the Queen to scrutinising her son and our new King. On this week's show, we're exploring what the accession of Charles to the throne might mean for the Church, both the capital C Church of England he is now the supreme governor of, but also the wider community of believers across Britain in general. As Prince of Wales, Charles rattled cages sometimes with some of his remarks about faith, and there remains uncertainty and confusion about his own relationship with religion. Will his reign offer change or continuity with his mother, who became perhaps the most admired public Christian in the land? Will he defend the faith, as every one of his predecessors has since Henry VIII, or move the monarchy forwards to a multi-faith pluralistic age. I speak to you today with feelings of profound sorrow. Throughout her life, Her Majesty the Queen, my beloved mother, was an inspiration, an example to me and to all my family. And we owe her the most heartfelt debt any family could owe to their mother for her love, affection, guidance, understanding and example. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. Wearing a sombre black suit and tie, and seated next to a photograph of his late mother, King Charles III makes his first ever address to the nation as their sovereign. After paying fulsome tribute to his dearly departed mamma, the Queen, he moved on to make his own pledges to the nation. In the course of the last 70 years, we have seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. The institutions of the state have changed in turn. But through all changes and challenges, our nation and the wider family of realms, of whose talents, traditions, and achievements I am so inexpressibly proud, have prospered and flourished. Our values have remained, and must remain, constant. The role and the duties of monarchy also remain, as does the sovereign's particular relationship and responsibility towards the Church of England, the Church in which my own faith is so deeply rooted. In that faith and the values it inspires, I have been brought up to cherish a sense of duty to others and to hold in the greatest respect the precious traditions, freedoms 
and responsibilities of our unique history and our system of parliamentary government. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. And wherever you may live in the United Kingdom or in the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love, as I have throughout my life. His words were a reminder that as well as inheriting a constitutional and political role, Charles was also stepping into a specifically religious one. The Queen was the supreme governor of the established state church in England, but also, especially in her later years, increasingly open about the centrality of her faith in Jesus. How will her son, who has waited more than 70 long years to take up the crown he was born to wear, rule as a Christian, and more precisely an Anglican, monarch? And what exactly has his own spirituality and faith journey been like since the dark days of his first marriage collapsing 30 years ago amid adultery and betrayal? Perhaps the first hints of the then prince's thoughts on this matter came when he mused it might be better to amend the traditional title of Defender of the Faith to become simply Defender of Faith. Every English king or queen since Henry VIII has taken the title, which after the Reformation came to entail upholding the Church of England's unique position and teaching. But in 1994, Charles suggested he would prefer to be known as defender of faith in general, in a nod to the decline of Anglicanism and the changing, secularising nation Henry VIII's successors now ruled. At the time, this provoked a storm of controversy and discontent, with some accusing Charles of wanting to disestablish the C of E or even betray Britain's Christian heritage. But George Pitcher, an Anglican vicar and former journalist and PR professional, said that both sides of that controversy had mellowed in the 25 years since. Uh, he did get a lot of stick uh, in the media for um, uh, the defender of faith or faith's uh, thing. And, um, you know, I expect I was amongst those that were critical of that <laughs> because there was... <laughs> there was um, uh, a phalanx of journalistic reaction to that sort of thing on the basis of, well, don't you understand what defender of the faith means because your role as Supreme Governor of the Church of England means that since the formation of the Church of England um, through um, Elizabeth and the Ref Reformation um, means that uh, the monarch has a specific role in um, standing up for, being Supreme Governor of, defending uh, the faith of the Anglican uh, Church in uh, England, um, the um, the Church of England, um, which of course is uh, schismatic from Catholic faith or the Roman Catholic faith, rather than heretical. So there's that kind of growth alongside of the Catholic tradition, which is important to us and um, needs articulating and indeed defending by its Supreme Governor. I think I, rather perhaps like him, that is King Charles, have uh, mellowed uh, a little <laughs> on what he was having to say under those circumstances. I recall um, that his mother, the late Her Majesty the Queen, um, gave a 
speech at Lambeth Palace, as um, um, I was about to say, as guest of the Archbishop of Canterbury, but of course it was the other way around, um, <laughs> uh, in 2012, in the Jubilee year of 2012, uh, a short speech in which I thought she articulated very well um, the idea that the Church of England didn't have a special place in the cultural architecture of our country so much as a role in uh, defending all faiths, if you like, and none. Uh, mm. People of all other faiths and none were safer and securer in the generosity of a faith community like the Church of England than they would otherwise be in a wholly secular state. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that kind of dovetails possibly with what our king, our new king, was trying to say. Um, I think that if you're saying the great quality of a national church, a state religion, if you can put it that way, that is rooted in Christian values, is that those Christian values are there uh, for the entire community and population and not just for those that are members of the Church of England. Um, and in the context of that, if you see his remarks with regard to defender of faith or defender of the faiths or, uh, or defender of faiths, then I think in that context, he's got a point and he's at one with his late mother, mm. uh, if, if, if you see what I mean. Um, it was the great Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, wasn't it? I think you said that the Church of England exists for the um uh the principal benefit of its non-members um mm. and uh, i think i think that principle as articulated by the late queen could well be at the root of what he had to say with regard to people of all faiths and people of no faith you know mm. the, the, the church has to be there for them too so i think i think we can hold out great hope in that respect that he's um uh, that he recognises the very special role of defender of the faith, um, the faith of the Church of England. Uh, but in that context, it also defends our entire multicultural community and society. In 2015, Charles rode back slightly and said he was content to become defender of the faith. In any event, the wording of the coronation oaths would need to be changed by Parliament, which has shown no interest in doing so, so we can be pretty confident nothing on the surface is going to change here. Mark Green, mission champion at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity and the co-author of a book about the Queen's faith, echoed this point and said Christians concerned their new king was weak on establishment or even Christianity at all had nothing to fear. Well, what I, I do know, having talked to some, not lots of people, but some people who know him well, who are also, of, if you like, Christian faith, um, they, they're clear that he is a man of faith. He is unlikely to be a Pentecostal, um, <laughs> but, but then Norway's his mama. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, they've said to me his, his faith is clearly genuine, and the, the, the comment made um, about defender of the faiths um, that caused quite a lot of controversy a, a few years back is actually a comment, a similar comment that the Queen herself has made 
you know, seeing her role as defending the freedom of all the faiths to worship freely within the nation. And I think that is how he intended it, even though it was clumsily uh, put at that particular time. Um, and he made it very clear in his own address to, to the nation um, that he had a deep faith um, and that that was significant to him. And so I expect him to um, to fulfil that. I mean, whether he, quite how he's going to uh, do his Christmas addresses, we shall see. So what do we know of Charles's own spirituality? As Mark Green noted, his few public remarks so far as sovereign have not shied away from religious language, including quoting a hymn to close his first address, which urged flights of angels to sing thee to thy rest. According to his own website, Charles is a quote, practicing Anglican who is quote, profoundly attached to the traditional rites of the Church of England and to the Book of Common Prayer. I contacted a senior Anglican figure who has prayed with Charles in the past, and although he declined to be interviewed to protect the now King's privacy, he did say Christians should be assured that, quote, the King is a deeply spiritual man with a personal Christian faith that will equip him to be an excellent King and Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Clearly, the monarch's life has seen ups and downs, and most notoriously a failure to live up to Christian teachings on marriage in his first union with Princess Diana. But all reports since confirm a picture of a man who is genuinely and authentically a follower of Christ, albeit along a less conventional path than his mother. It does seem to me that, given some of his comments and remarks in the past, um, his faith may be rooted, his Christian faith, may be rooted in something more cerebral uh, than his mother's version. Mm. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, of course, but, it, but what I mean is that I think uh, his late mother um, had a very visceral faith, um, a faith she understood, to use the metaphor, in her heart, um, mm. uh, rather than primarily in her head. Um, that's not to say that she didn't understand um, the rubrics and the canons of the Church of England, which she did uh, intimately and um, in huge detail. Um, but I do have a feeling that she felt her faith in her everyday life in a very intense and practical way in the way that she governed. And we have to wait and see whether the same is the case uh, for her son. And I, I think I really want to make that comment in the context of she's a very tough act to follow mm. in regard of her, in, in, in respect of her Christian faith, um, which was river deep and, um, and hugely prayerful, I believe. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not sure any of us necessarily can, 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 can live up to those standards of hers. Um, so that's a that's a tough job. It's a toughie for the new king. Um, so you know, let's cut him some slack and give him some time and um, and see how it emerges. He is verbally wholly committed to it, and they, and you know he is um, he's gone out of his way in his early speeches uh, as king uh, to. Uh, to say that it's with the help of God and in prayer uh, and um, that he is ready to serve. And there's that servant ministry, which is so important mm. in a monarch, um, to serve his people. So 
Um, so I think he's more and more than willing to give it his uh, best shot. And I think we need to be generous spirited in accepting um, his commitment. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. Ian Bradley, the Emeritus Professor of Cultural and Spiritual History at the University of St Andrews, told The Guardian recently that he believed Charles's Christianity was less low-church Protestantism as favoured by the Queen and instead of a different flavour. He went on to say, quote, Charles shares his mother's faith and devotion, though it has a slightly different complexion, perhaps more naturally high church, with a particular affinity for and interest in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. The connection with orthodoxy dates back to his grandmother, Princess Alice, a complex yet heroic figure who hid a family of Jews from the Nazi occupation of Greece during the Second World War and later founded an order of nuns. Charles has made several discreet pilgrimages to Mount Athos, one of the holiest monasteries in all of orthodoxy, and is believed to have added orthodox icons to his personal chapel at his country estate Highgrove House. But he also has a keen interest in both Islam and Judaism, having studied both these ancient faiths and spent time with respected imams and rabbis. The future surely lies in rediscovering the universal truths that dwell at the heart of these religions, he once said. All I've ever wanted to do is build bridges that span these chasms. George Pitcher said this long history of fostering interfaith relations did not undermine the king's own commitment to Christianity, but was a necessary part of being an Anglican monarch in the 21st century. I think that that really reflects that the Queen's coronation was at a time when the Church of England was uh, had a sort of faith hegemony over everything that it surveyed in this country. Um, it really was um, the national faith, um, or recognised to be, however, post-war developments were beginning to occur uh, in society. And I think um, King Charles inherits a very different multicultural society, um, and therefore he does have an obligation if he is going to be um, the supreme governor of a church that um, that seeks to defend our people of all faiths and none, he has got a responsibility to be interfaith in terms of his understanding of the different cultures that make up our society as distinct from uh, the society from which his mother's reign emerged. So I think it's exciting and I think it's challenging. Um, but I would be worried if he was more of a exclusive fundamentalist uh, mm -hmm. in his faith, if he was in any sense thinking in terms of, well, my job is to defend the Christian faith and the Christian church in this country in any way that seemed to, um, to uh, alienate. Um, and that's the opposite of the, the 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 kind of actions to which you're identifying him you know the fact that he is um interested in uh but committed to working alongside other faith leaders i think has to be encouraging because i think that's something that we all uh in our own very much smaller uh faith leadership roles have to recognize that we're part of 
Charles is also famously a man of strong opinions who has not always been afraid of expressing them. As Prince of Wales, as well as regularly speaking publicly about his views on everything from organic farming to architectural development, he would often also send private handwritten letters to government ministers lobbying them on an enormous range of topics, from military procurement to EU directives and alternative medicines. Alongside his eclectic range of interests, we can add faith, and in particular the persecution of Christians. This is a concern Charles has adopted with gusto since Middle Eastern believers began to come under violent attack from ISIS and other Islamist militants a decade ago. He has regularly met with Syriac and Coptic Orthodox Christians living in the UK and urged more action to protect the persecuted church in media appearances and speeches, forcing this often neglected issue up the public agenda. In 2018, he made a special Easter broadcast focusing on those who suffer for their faith around the world and returning to a favoured theme of fostering better coexistence between Christianity and other religions. My heart goes out to all who this day, whatever their beliefs, are being persecuted on religious grounds. And at this time of Easter, when our minds are recalled to the suffering of our Lord, 2,000 years ago, we think especially of those Christians who are suffering for their faith in many places around the world. I want to assure them that they are not forgotten and that they are in our prayers. Over the years, I have met many who have had to flee for their faith and for their life or have somehow endured the terrifying consequences of remaining in their country. And I have been so deeply moved and humbled by their truly remarkable courage and by their selfless capacity for forgiveness despite all that they have suffered. I've also heard that in the darkness there are small shafts of light, signs of resurrection and of hope that slowly but surely, Christians who have had to flee from their homelands are beginning to return and to rebuild their shattered homes. Biblical lands such as Syria and modern Iraq were not always places of strife between people of different faiths. For centuries in many countries, the three great Abrahamic faiths have lived side by side as neighbours and as friends. For example, I have heard how in Lebanon, Muslims join with Christians at the shrine of Our Lady of Lebanon to honour her together. I know too of senior muftis who believe in the essential importance of the Christian faith to maintaining the balance of the Middle East. Mark Green said that while Charles would be more limited as king to share his personal views, he suspected the monarch would still find a way. But of course, Charles has had, um, um, how can I put this? He's historically been on the leading edge of a lot of things. Um, you know, clearly he's, he's seen partly through the, the series of very unfortunate events around Lady Diana and their divorce and so on. Um, but um, in terms of climate change, he was, the, he was there a long time ahead of most people, a long time before it was fashionable, uh, and he took flack for it. You know, 
he he took flat for it. Similarly, with um, some of the dehumanizing architecture that was being produced in Britain, he 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 had a go at that. He took flack for it. And certainly as it relates to what you might call domestic architecture, I think most people would agree that that's, those high rises were very bad for people. And and he was right about that. He he took the leading edge on organic farming and he was right about that. Um, you know, in the sense that now that's that's an okay thing to do. I'm not saying it's, you know, it's, it's possible for all farming everywhere, but it, it clearly... Um, um, was was innovative, leading edge, thoughtful. So I think one of the things about Charles is that he he has his own ideas, <laughs> and I think he will he will bring he will bring that to bear um, with with the um, self restraint that uh, is char- characterizes the monarchy. Well, I wanted just to end on that because I think. He's clearly, or in his life as Prince of Wales, been much more outspoken than than others in the in royals, or at least maybe the convention would be. And on on his passions, like you mentioned about architecture, whether it's the environment, um, you know, he's famous for sending these very uh, difficult to read handwritten letters to government ministers, <laughs> sharing his views on various policies and things like yeah. that. Um, a very different approach to the kind of, as you say, the kind of testimonial, gentle uh storytelling from from the queen do you think he's going to have to clam up now that he is on the throne he's not going to be able to be outspoken on his yeah. passions or his, even his personal spirituality which is you know complex and nuanced and, and multifarious now he's on the throne he's going to have to sit into those kind of rigid tram lines that the queen lived in which is just you know smile cut ribbons uh, and other than that once a year christmas speech basically don't say anything at all Yes, although I think you would have learned from from his his mummy, as he calls her, that um, there's influence you can have. There are places you can go. There are, there are questions you can ask. And I suspect the Queen was a brilliant, you know, asker of good questions. She never told the prime ministers what to do. But like excellent life coaches, you know, mentors give you answers to your questions, and life coaches uh, have questions for your answers. Mm-hmm. And I suspect the Queen was rather good at asking wise questions. And um, I, I would hope that Charles would do that. I, I certainly don't expect him, and he didn't when he read the Queen's speech, go, you know, start making commentary or raising his eyebrows or smiling. Whoa, thank goodness you've done that at last. Or, you cannot be serious. I think he will. I think he will go down the tram lines. But I think what we've learned from the Queen is that you can have an impact. You can make a difference. You can carry on summoning people to the things that you believe in. And sentence by sentence, affirmation of people with particular values uh, applied, like when she affirms Emma Raducanu, what does she talk about? Her hard work, what does she suggest to her? You are going to be an inspiration. She calls her to remind her that she's going to be a model for other people. You know, diligence, excellence, hard work service of others in what you do it was right there in what she said to emma raducano it was there in how she praised the lionesses that there's ways in which you can fly the flag for the things that you believe in without shoving it down anybody's throats Mm -hmm. but yeah he will be limited george pitcher added that he hoped charles would not feel silenced by the crown and would continue speaking out on moral and ethical issues as he did earlier this year when he let it be known that he strongly opposed the deportation of asylum seekers to Rwanda.
I really hope that he can continue. At a personal level, I hope that he can continue to be outspoken when he needs to. He let it be known that he thought the Rwanda policy of deporting um, uh, desperate migrants to Rwanda was, uh, in his words, appalling. Um, and um, I don't know if he had one eye to those who satirise him in private eye, actually, but there's a line that they've always used of his, which is, really is appalling. You know? <laughs> um, and I wonder if he, uh, you know, with one eyebrow cocked, thought he would uh, use that word. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we, we do have this unwritten constitution. We have conventions, which, and uh, some of those conventions are written in law, obviously, with regard to our uh, parliamentary democracy um, and the monarch's deference to, um, to that parliament. Um, nevertheless, you know, they hold terms like head of state and um, supreme governor in the Church of England and so on. And I think we sometimes confuse the conventions that are very important to us as a country um, with a legally written formal constitution. And by, I'm making the point, really, that I don't think there's anything in law or in written constitutional terms that stops King Charles from expressing his opinion. It is only that the monarch has, through the tolerance of our parliamentary democracy, and I think there's something to be said for the continuity of uh, a monarchy and the independence of a monarchy, if I can put it that way, that is able um, to make it make a position known when it becomes fearful that the fabric of our democracy in an unwritten constitution could be threatened anyway, in any way um, by values and initiatives and policies that are really foreign to us. You know, I do think we have had um, some very second rate and shabby um, um, political governance um, in recent years. Um, and I'm glad in that context that the person who is now our king, shortly before he came king, wasn't afraid to call them out uh, mm. on that. Um, and I think that's, I think it takes courage. And I think it's, um, uh, I think it's in keeping with his role as um, defender of the faith, actually. Um, mm. I do think that it's the job of Christians to call out uh, politicians who uh, do things that are fundamentally cruel and uh, not in the finest traditions of this country's policy making with regard to the welcome of the stranger. And I do think it's the job of Christians to stand in the corner of the oppressed and the marginalised. And I believe that's what our King did as Prince of Wales over, over the, uh, a very poor policy with regard to um, desperate immigrants arriving in this country. So 
plenty of encouragement for Christians nervous about their new king, or indeed missing their old queen, but also lots of unknowns. Will Charles use his Christmas speeches as his mother did in her later years to share hints of his own story of following Jesus as the servant king? Can he use the platform of the throne itself to advocate for his religious passions without alienating a secularising nation? As the country steps into an uncertain future without its longest serving one upon the throne, for now we will simply have to wait and see. That's it for this week's episode of Premier Christian Newscast. We'll be back next Monday morning. And to make sure you receive each week's show sent straight to your phone or tablet, make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using. If you're enjoying the podcast, please could you give us a rating and a review on your app. This really helps us spread the word about the show. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast.